It's the Big Wake Up Call. I'm Ryan Gatenby, and so excited to talk to my next guest. He won two batting titles, an MVP, played in seven All-Star games. Of his 339 career homers, I bet at least 90 of those were hit against the Cubs. And he's the author of a new book, Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. And it is my pleasure to visit with Dave Parker. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing, Dave? How are things where you are? Well, I'm doing good. So much fun reading your book. So many great memories of watching baseball as a kid in the 70s and 80s. That 79 Pirates team was one of my favorites. Even though that year you went 12-6 uh, and six against the Cubs, you just smacked us around nonstop. You were the Cubs and have the pitching. And they uh, were short on pitching, so we took advantage of that. We had uh, we had Rick Rushell and Bruce Souter, and then uh, about nine nine empty spots in the middle. I think. Yeah, it was kind of kind of tough going for you guys. But uh, reading your book, so many great stories. I didn't realize that uh, earlier in your career, you're coming up in the pirate system. You're mentored by Roberto Clemente. It's almost like you had an unfair advantage because you're learning from maybe one of the best of all time. Yeah, he was a great one. And that's what they called it. And uh, he was that. He um, taught me how to reach back and get more velocity on my throws. I probably picked up about 10 to 20 more miles per hour on my throws. And uh, he taught me that. And I was just watching uh, footage of you playing and uh, one game – um, against the Phillies, and someone is foolish enough to run on your arm, and you just nailed him at second. I used to have a lot of guys challenge me. I know I had 21 assists and led the league one year, and uh, guys just kept running, and I kept throwing them out. Yeah. The theme of that 79 team, I'll never forget the We Are Family, and, and you talk about brotherhood in your book. It does seem like all of you on that team really, really bonded and were, were, uh, were trying to take care of each other. Yeah, we uh, kind of govern ourselves. You know, Chuck put that on over our heads to govern ourselves. And uh, Chuck was a manager that managed with one eye and one ear. He didn't see everything. He didn't hear everything. Uh-huh. And I thought that was that was important uh, for a team like we had. We had so many personalities. Willie uh, being the leader of the club, senior statesman, uh, myself, Bill Gardner, Doc Ellis for a short period of time, uh, Bill Robinson, Larry Demery. These are all personalities that had to be managed, and Chuck was ideal for that. Was Willie Stargell as much fun to be with as he was to watch on the field? He just seemed to play every game. We, we just saw, like, pure joy when he was on the field. He was happiest when he was on the field. Uh, he, he philosophized a lot. He, he liked to get an audience in the clubhouse. Yeah. And uh, Willie was uh, a universal personality, and we couldn't have won without him. And then talking about uh, your relationship with Phil Garner, I don't think people realize how good Phil was as a player. Just just fundamentally, it seems like he had everything. How did you two become so close? Well, they gave up six six players to get Phil. And Phil made about two or three errors the first day he played. 
And uh, I came in the clubhouse and I said, six players, six players, my A. And uh, I got him upset. He wanted to give me some chin and he came over and uh, we laughed about the incident and became best of friends. Talking about uh, also in, in, in the book, your relationship with uh, with J.R. Richard, which if a lot of people don't know the story, you need to read more on J.R. Richard. He was still the fastest pitcher I've ever seen in person. When he came to Wrigley, it seemed like he was throwing uh, like 110 past uh, Kingman and Buckner. It felt like that as a hitter. You know, he uh, <clears throat> had long arms and uh, velocity was around – 103, 105 miles an hour. <clears throat> he was the most intimidating pitcher in the league. And then, obviously, you have to talk in uh, the book about uh, your, your struggles, your stories, the, the drug use around baseball in, in the 70s and 80s. From, from what we've heard, it seems like it was absolutely everywhere. I know that can't be 100% true, but how hard was it to to avoid seeing that, to, to get into that when it's going on all around you? Everybody was doing it. You know, in your medical profession, you know, sports, everything that you can think of, it, it was involved uh, with, with cocaine. It was a, a time when everybody was doing it, and it was hard to get around. I, I looked at it as being a fad when I first got involved. Then I saw it overtake people, change their lives. You know, it was uh, more than a fad. It, it was something that just was an error. But was it seen more, hey, this is going to enhance my performance or this was just a, a way to relax after games? Because I've seen some players say they, they did credit it for a little bit of uh, improvement on the field, but ultimately, you know, it uh, it led to nothing. Well, it led to nothing. Nothing positive could come out of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, people use it to enhance their sexual in, enhancement. Uh, I knew people that used it prior to uh, playing. You know, it was just uh, something that infiltrated uh, an industry like baseball, and it was ideal because the money was right there. The guys were on schedules that They would utilize to to get get the product. So it was uh, one of those situations you had nothing to win. And I don't know if it, if it's local media protecting players. I just never heard that much about it with the Cubs. And I would think players coming in so many day games after night games that it would be it would be difficult to uh, you know play a game the night before and then it was always a, a one ten start at Wrigley before the lights. And uh, you stayed on Rush Street. Oh, yeah. You would move the ballpark, go to Rush Street, party there. And like you say, you got to get up in the morning. And uh, that was one thing that that I did. If I had an obligation, I fulfilled it. 
And, uh, but you, you wonder what kind of product you get. If you're coming out there after being on Rush Street to four in the morning and then going out trying to play a 105 game, uh, the product can't be that good. And then you sign with Cincinnati as a free agent for the 1984 season. You finally got the big contract, making the money you deserve. What was that like the first time you take the field in that uniform as a member of, of the team you grew up with? Well, you always dreamed about playing for your hometown team. And uh, I was no different than any, any other kid. Uh, when I played for the Reds, it was like fulfilling a dream. And... Uh, I had probably my four most productive years as a Cincinnati Red. Yeah, it must have felt like you were getting a fresh start. Was it that to you after a couple down years in Pittsburgh? Because, yeah, you came out and just tore it up with the Reds. Well, I um, did have like a, a new start playing in front of my parents and brothers and sisters. And uh, I uh, went in the Reds with some attitude that I was going to show everybody what I was capable of still doing. And I invented a a home run slot that I saved for the pitchers that I told the pitchers when I uh, was in Pittsburgh my last two years that uh, I was going to do something special for them. I was going to invent something and present it to them when I got to Cincinnati. So I developed this home run trot called a thing. And I would hit home runs and run around the bases with my guns out, <laughs> with my fingers pointed down. And uh, that was what I had for the league when I got healthy. Do you feel like yeah, that, that you yourself and a lot of players from your era, do you think your careers could have lasted a year or two longer if uh, they got rid of the AstroTurf that, that everyone had in the 70s and early 80s? Well, the turf was definitely would hurt a knee. You know, you couldn't stop and start on turf. It was just a concrete slab with uh, some turf in the middle, and, you know, you played baseball on it. One number concrete, I used to slide to catch the ball and it burned all the way through my pants and my knee pads. So, you know, I got scars on my body now from dealing with that turf. And just remember Andre Dawson, like, coming and offering a blank contract to the Cubs just to play on grass all of the time. And, like, if, if it had been that even across the league, I can't believe the stats you guys would have been able to put up. Yeah, Andre had some horrible knees, and uh, he should have had 25, 30 more home runs. But uh, he had knee problems, and that turf didn't help. And then, Dave, as people are reevaluating players from the 70s and 80s, going over things, you're probably the best player not to be in the Hall of Fame. As the Veterans Committee looks things over, do you feel like you have a good shot? Because it doesn't make sense that Dave Parker's not in the Hall of Fame. Well, I don't know what the committee's doing, but I've done everything I need to do to be in the Hall. And uh, I uh, can live with not being there, too. Because uh, my peers 
show me that I'm a Hall of Famer in everything that I do and did. So uh, I uh, can live with not being a Hall of Famer. And the new book is Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. The author, of course, my guest, uh, Dave Parker. Dave, I want to have everybody on the show whose poster I had on the wall as a kid. So it is great to talk to you, and thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure.